we're in Genesis chapter 39. We have been dealing uh, with uh, this family of Isaac and uh, the descendants, the sons, and um, we've come to the 12 sons, and particularly uh, the 11 brothers' treatment of Joseph, or at least 10 of them at the time, uh, the uh, the brothers who have hated Joseph for the fact that he is favored by his father. And uh, in the previous chapter, we, we took a break, or the, the Bible takes a break, from discussing the life of Joseph. Uh, and uh, we looked at the life and circumstances of Judah, his brother. But um, Joseph, uh, if you're not familiar with this, account. Uh, his father uh, loved uh, his mother more than the mother of his other brothers. And um, in that relationship, Joseph was closer to him. Now, the Lord blessed Joseph with spiritual gifts also. Particularly, he had dreams that were spiritual and prophetic, and he was capable of interpreting dreams that were spiritual and prophetic. He also uh, has a great sense that God has given him of a gift of administration and management. Um, you know, these things aren't just something we uh, look at and uh, derive from the Scripture. Later in the New Testament, we're told that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the church today concentrates on other gifts as being more important and prominent, but one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that is listed is the gifts of administration. So, you know, something that the Lord gives certain people. You know, when we look through the Scripture, we see in Genesis, God creates certain people with the gifts of metalworking. Others have the gifts of music, you know. And, you know, you got the construction workers that are always thinking the guys that, you know, are the artists or somehow lesser or vice versa, or I don't know what, how that works out. God's given everybody different gifts. If we use them together within the kingdom, then the Lord's work is done. The division that's in this family causes a hatred. Uh, Joseph has been given what the scripture describes as a coat of many colors by his father. We could interpret that a number of different ways, but we'll just leave it as it's been translated. He has this colorful coat. His brothers resent him for his spiritual gifts for his place in administration, and on top of that, he reports accurately to his father the labor failings of his brothers. So when they're supposed to be doing certain work and they're not, he goes back and tells his dad. So now they feel like he's the snitch and they've got it in for him. Okay, In this process, they make the decision they're going to kill him. I mean, straight up, Murder is in their heart. They're going to kill him. And in the process, they end up throwing him in a pit, and then they sell him off, rather than killing him, to some traders, some Midianite traders that are passing by. So we take the chapter 38 off, hear about Judah, and then come to chapter 39, where it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now, particularly the term officer 
that is used in verse 1 is actually the word eunuch. So this man has uh, been castrated in order that he would be in service to the Pharaoh without interfering with any of Pharaoh's wives or any of his concubines. It was commonly done in this period of time, and there were great compensations financially made to men who would serve a king or a pharaoh in such a way. So here, this man who is an officer of pharaoh buys Joseph. In verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Now that's something I would encourage you to perhaps even underline, because that is stated throughout the story of Joseph. And honestly, you know, many of us have been in church for some time and we've heard this account so often that we we kind of blend the whole thing together and don't think about perhaps what our reaction would be. In a in a very natural sense of human nature, most of us that went through these levels of betrayal and trial and difficulty, you get to the end of the story, we would probably be very bitter, very cynical people. Joseph is not. Joseph is a man who is filled with love and mercy and grace. And in the process, you hear that statement over and over again. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. You only know the Lord is with you when you're in horrendous trials if you're looking for the Lord. Because the horrendous trial is not going to tell you the Lord is with you. The horrendous trial is going to be convincing you the Lord has forsaken you. The Lord has betrayed you. That you are on your own. That life is simply harming you. At this point... It says plainly, the Lord is with Joseph. He was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, referring to Potiphar. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hands. So Potiphar recognizes this man is blessed, that the things he does uh, turn out successful. He's able to to do the work and accomplish the tasks, and things are run well under his control. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, which was actually common. Amongst their servants, uh, they would recognize skills and abilities amongst their servants, and they would often recognize one who had the capabilities, you know, in a, a earthly sinful sense, whether it was through cruelty or through wisdom, they were able to run and manage a household or a business well. So a master would appoint a particular servant as the overseer of his circumstances. In this case, Joseph is doing this work through wisdom. He's accomplishing all of the success and these good things through his relationship with God. And all that he had, he put under his authority. And so it was, 
from that time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Now, we're going to see that especially Joseph recognizes that this is the blessing of the Lord. But even Potiphar has a sense that this is the blessing of the Lord in the process. Um, some of it is certainly Joseph's management and the way that he's handling things. But there are just circumstances also that the passage implies are transpiring that both Joseph and Potiphar are able to recognize God is in control here. This isn't anything we're capable of doing. You know, we, we do the best with what the Lord has lent to us, but in the end, they're recognizing the sovereign hand of God and what it is that he's doing both in the house and in the field. You know, agrarian society, growing their crops and providing for their household. Thus, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And notice this, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So two portions there. First, Potiphar gets to the point quickly where when people are asking him questions, he's deferring everything to Joseph. You know, do you, you know, can I borrow your lawnmower? I don't know if I have a lawnmower. Joseph, do I have a lawnmower? You know, everything is being directed, you know, to Joseph in this way. You know, could I do, I don't know. We'll have to ask Joe. You know, everything is going through Joe at this point. And that's because, you know, he is content with this man's supervision. At no point is he turning to Joseph and saying, you know, what is the circumstance with my belongings and discovering that it's a terrible thing and that things aren't being managed well. He trusts Joseph because Joseph is trustworthy. Now, the second portion here, that says that he's handsome in form and appearance. That is rarely stated in all of the scripture. You know, I, I want to be clear. There are a few exceptions. It says a similar thing about Moses, that he was handsome in form and appearance. Now, on the other hand, God doesn't just use the beautiful people. You got Paul, and we know that he was ugly. So you know, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and where would we be without the writings of Paul? You know, most of his life in prison beaten, tortured, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes. Life was bad. So beautiful people and the rest of us get used by the Lord sometimes. Here it plays into what he's going to have to contend with, this circumstance with Potiphar's wife that is about to unfold. Keep in mind, okay, there's a reason that we ask for the younger children <coughs> to go to their age-appropriate classes, and they get a Bible lesson that's on their level. And in this room, we discuss more adult things. Okay, Joseph is at the peak of his sex drive. 17 to 20 years old, handsome in form and appearance. This young man is going to be tested on the level of sexual immorality like we can't imagine. So watch how this unfolds. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife 
cast longing eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, look, generally speaking, the women that were given to these men of power were exceptionally beautiful. And then they had at their disposal tremendous amounts of money. And so they were able to do for themselves everything they could to beautify themselves. We don't know where this relationship began, but the understanding is very clear from verse 1. There's no sexual relationship between Potiphar and his wife. Potiphar is a eunuch. This woman, because of her husband's desire for power and money, is left with an unnatural longing in her life that she now focuses on a very vulnerable young man. A very dangerous prospect right here. And there's a lot to learn from it for all of us. So many people that end up in marital crisis have similar circumstances in their life where their natural relationship with their spouse is broken down over the pursuit of other things in their life. That will create profound vulnerabilities. And the scripture has a lot to say about it. I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians and see what the Lord himself says to the New Testament Christians about the natural affections of husbands and wives towards one another and the need to protect and preserve them and ensure that they're healthy. This young man finds himself in a household where the relationship between husband and wife is not natural and it's unhealthy and he is about to become a victim of that situation. Longing eyes set on him and she is saying outright, let's have sex together. Lie with me. Uh, this, this is not some suggestion, right? This isn't her, you know, walking around in provocative clothing, saying suggestive things. This is straight out, you and I should go to bed together. This young man is contending with very serious temptation. But, verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, My master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. So look, there's the natural understanding, but the way that's written out implies Potiphar has said the wife is off limits. Potiphar has relayed to him with an accuracy, everything is at your disposal. Get in the fridge anytime you want. Stay away from my wife. He's laid it out plain. Because you are his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness? Listen, our culture has dumbed this down so badly that it doesn't even view this as wickedness. It it has no sense of sexual morality at all. Our culture is lost in this. Completely lost. I hear Christians 
talking about how they've gained a new understanding of their responsibility regarding sexual morality. And they've gained that understanding from the world. The world is sick, twisted, diseased in its sin. We don't want to derive our understanding of sexual conduct from the world at all. It needs to come from God's Word. That's going to be the thing that provides us with the greatest degree of satisfaction. The greatest degree of satisfaction is going to come through obedience to God, not in pursuit of the things of the flesh the way the world promotes them. And notice this. He says, and sin against God. He doesn't put the standard on Potiphar. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Which would make sense. What he says is this would be a sin against God. All of this blessing, all of this countenance that God being with him is providing, he understands. Am I going to flush that down the toilet? That would be stupid. Am I just going to blow up everything that God has given me? It's amazing to watch people enter into their sin in this way. You can see God is doing wonderful things in their life, and it's as though they just pull the pin right out of the grenade, embrace it warmly, and just let it go. And everyone is standing around going, this is insane, I can't believe what you're doing. And as their life is shattered into oblivion, everyone gets to experience the horror of the process. Joseph understands the danger and is saying, I'm not going to cooperate with that. I'm not on board. This takes a very strong young man to do this. This, this spiritual gift of dreams and interpretation, that tells us the depth of relationship this young man has. And now we're seeing even further into it. His relationship with the Lord is strong. His relationship with the Lord is sure. So it was, as she spoke to Joseph, day by day. This wasn't a one-time thing. You know, a build-up to a moment where Potiphar's wife gets the gumption to say, hey, we should have sex together. This is every day. Every day, this woman is flinging herself at him. And he is resistant. He did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Now it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were inside. You can almost hear the dramatic music right there. No one else is in the house. Always dangerous. Always dangerous. Being alone with someone of the opposite sex. It's, it's, it's a dangerous thing. I, in raising my daughters, three of them, all married now, forbid this in their lives and talked to all of the young men that they spent time with. Explaining very carefully to these young men, look, it isn't a matter of my distrusting you or distrusting them. It has more to do with the fact that things could be said. It's your responsibility to protect their reputation as well as their purity. If you're going to be around them, 
then it's important that you have their best in mind. Being alone can generate circumstances no one foresaw. That's exactly what happens here. You don't know what's in the other person's heart. You have to be very, very careful of this type of circumstance. Verse 12, alone in the house, there inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Now, I'm not going to read too much into it, but I made the point previously when we studied this, Joseph's got a problem with clothing. Okay. He, he has a coat of many colors, and his brothers hate him for it and take it from him and throw him in a pit and tear it up and put blood on it, take it back to his dad, and now he's here and she's ripping his clothes off. He's just got this strange thing in his life. You're thinking you're making too much of it. Are there things in your life that just seem to continuously end up like, why, why do I have this problem? Why, why do I just... I look at other people, they don't have this problem with this thing in their life, but I have this problem. If you recognize some unique, weird thing in your life that is problematic, you might want to seek the Lord over that. You know, I, I know some people like have certain temptations that nobody else has. Uh, they're just so strange what people get caught up in, you know what I'm saying? I, I talk to certain people and they're obsessed with certain things and I'm left thinking like, how could you ever be obsessed with that? It makes no sense whatsoever. But then as they look at my life, you know, there I am. I've got my things. You got certain areas of struggle that other people don't understand, but you can recognize that it catches you up and you get snared in it. Deal with it between you and the Lord. Make sure you're handling it properly. Do what you want with that weirdness. So here she's grabbed him. He flees. He leaves the coat uh, behind and uh, departs from the house. There's um, um, so it was when she saw that she had, that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, see. Notice this. He, meaning her husband, has brought into us a Hebrew. She throws a little racism in there to mock us, right? Probably like Joseph's brothers, they've already got a little bit of contempt against Joseph for his leadership, oversight, management. So she just puts the dig in there. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Nobody can verify that, right? Nobody else was in the house. She's making the statement because according to Egyptian law, according to Hebrew law, if a man tried to assault a woman, one of her legal defenses was she had to have screamed for help defensively very loud. Right? You know, it can't just be, oh, please stop. You know, it's got to be that she puts up massive protest. So she's making the statement, I screamed for all I was worth, but nobody was here. She's feeding into the minds 
of the people that are going to testify on her behalf to her husband and others that she she was proper, she did what was right in these circumstances. It happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. Now, that would make sense to the people who are witnessing this, right? I mean, who would just leave their garments and run away naked? I mean, only a man who's already taken off his clothing would leave his garments behind. Not so here. She's ripping them off and he just wants to get away. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, the Hebrew servant, again, just put the little racism dig in there, whom you brought to us, so let's just make sure everyone understands that it's your fault, Potiphar, came in to mock me, literally rape me, but within that is the mockery that she's putting on her husband. Think about this. Her husband's a eunuch, incapable of a sexual relationship with her, so she's, in the original language, putting the dig on him. Joseph is mocking you for your inabilities to have this relationship with me and your commitments to the Pharaoh. So she is playing every angle against Joseph that she can. So it happened. As I lifted up my voice and cried out, again, the testimony that she did what was proper, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. So Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in the prison. Now, a couple of things. This is sheer speculation on my part, but some research into this will show you that attempted rape in Egypt was a death sentence. You don't get to live through this. There's not a prison sentence that's assigned to you, little own if you attempt to rape an officer of the king. If you try to rape the wife of one of Pharaoh's officers, you can guarantee you're going to be put to death. There's something here that's not explained to us about the fact that Joseph is merely put in prison. My own personal speculation is that Potiphar understands something. I don't know what, but he understands something about Joseph and his wife that causes him to say, just imprison the man. That's my speculation. It's my speculation. My thought is that even within this, somehow Joseph's integrity is still protecting him. There's, there's a thin line here of interpretation that I think somehow Potiphar is walking away thinking, I know my wife. I know Joseph. Something doesn't make sense. I'm going to spare this guy the death sentence. And he has him put in prison. A cross-reference for us as New Testament believers. 1 Peter chapter 3, 
beginning at verse 15, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear, as Joseph was. He, he was constantly presenting the testimony of the Lord to everyone who experienced him. Peter says, 1 Peter 3, verse 16, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Verse 17, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. People are going to talk. People like to talk. They like to say all kinds of things. Make sure that our, your, my integrity is what it should be so that when they talk, even if it sounds right in the beginning, right? Here's his garment. Here's his cloak. Let me show the evidence of his failures to you that in time it's going to be realized the falsehood of what's being said. If we walk in our integrity, our integrity protects us. If we preserve ourselves in our relationship with the Lord, then you know we're going to be defamed. But in the end, it'll be because of our relationship with Christ. Jesus, there, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, talks about how we're blessed when people say all kinds of reviling things about us falsely. For so they treated the prophets who were before us. Back in Genesis chapter 39, looking at verse 21, it says, For the Lord was with Joseph. Right? There it is again. I mean, if we just went through Joe's experience, we would not be thinking, God is with me. This is turning out swell. That's not your reaction in circumstances such as this. And yet, the Scripture faithfully records, the Holy Spirit is sure to tell us that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. See, he wasn't put to death for whatever reason. I can just throw my speculations away. He wasn't put to death. God was with him, favored him, showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. How does that happen? You know, I mean, this kid was just sent to jail, this kid. This young man was just sent to jail. And, and immediately, he's made a trustee in, in the jail. It's wild. The keeper of the prison committed to Joseph Hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. All the prisoners. You know what? You should be in charge. New prisoner, newly sentenced, newly assigned. Why don't you run things? Oh, hey something's got to stand out in this young man's behavior. You know what I'm saying? I, I got no idea. I mean, you could just sit around and imagine, right, all day long. Did Joseph walk into the prison, stop a fight that was going on, you know, separate people, put things in order, you know, sit down, guards leave him, they come back an hour later and realize they left the door wide open and he didn't walk away? I don't know. Other than to say... The keeper of the prison immediately recognizes this young man's trustworthy. I don't have to be concerned about him. 
his his behavior is automatically showing him that he gave all the prisoners into his charge whatever they did there it was his doing the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under joseph's authority because the lord was with him and whatever he did the lord made to prosper there's i mean that is just such a loaded section of the scripture that does not come about without the blessing of the lord in a person's life there's no way you walk into a situation like that as an inmate and you are just granted the keys to the prison it makes no sense whatsoever it isn't even as though he's gone through some kind of work release program and he's been to college and he now has you know, a degree in criminal justice and he's applying for a job and because the governor has given him a recommendation, he gets hired under some kind of probationary circumstance and proves he's a prisoner and he's being given charge of the prison. Imagine, you guys, imagine the consequences for the keeper of the prison if something goes wrong and the pharaoh finds out you 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 let me get this straight you gave the keys of the prison to an inmate the pharaoh is going to string somebody up and and we see in just two chapters that he's actually prone to doing that the pharaoh is prone to having people put to death he utilizes his authority to have people executed. This only comes in Joseph's life because of his submission to God. Look, so many people that are believers are looking for this level of blessing in their life from the Lord and they simultaneously are completely unsubmitted to the Lord with their lives. They want all of this type of blessing. And all they recognize is, yeah, I'm like Joseph. I'm getting beat up all the time. I'm getting betrayed all the time. I'm getting bad circumstances all the time. But nothing ever turns out good for me. Are you this submitted to the Lord as Joseph is? moment to moment in your private life in your day to day when no one is there to hold you accountable right it was it was billy graham many years ago now that said who you are when you are completely alone is who you really are we kid ourselves and convince ourselves right that we're something that perhaps we're not psychology You've probably heard that term psychosis, right? One of the most basic definitions of psychosis, they, they, they have these weird definitions. There is within human beings, according to psychology, they've made these classifications of what they call the ego and the superego, okay? Now, if you think you know what that is, let me just tell you what they say it is, okay? Uh, the superego is how you perceive yourself, okay? The ego is what you actually are, okay? When people say, oh, well, that guy's got quite an ego, okay? 
what they usually mean is he's quite a jerk. <laughs> That's usually what they mean. Now, he might not think that about himself, okay? Because his super ego is different than his ego. If you're thinking, I don't care about any of this, well, here's, here's what I'm trying to get to. The psychologists will classify someone's mental illness based upon the gap between their super ego and their ego. Okay, so, so they'll say that a guy is seriously mentally ill because he thinks he's awesome and he's a lowlife, right? Everyone knows him to be a horrible human being and he thinks he's incredible. The distance between, and, and it goes either way, okay, this is how they, they gauge this. You might think you're an absolutely terrible person. Some people have grown up in homes and circumstances where they just hate themselves, they think, very low of themselves, but they're really a really nice person. Everyone loves them, and the gap between what they think of themselves and who they really are is so broad that they have this sort of mental state of existence. The gap between the ego and the superego is defined as psychosis, mental illness. The greater the gap, the worse off we are. So it is spiritually. We think we're doing very, very well, with the Lord and in our lives, and we're failing miserably and standing around going, where's the blessing, man? Consider. Consider the gap between the reality and the imagination. When these things, the closer, right, because we always imagine ourselves better, but the closer these things are together, and if we can get them coupled together Completely. This is the humility that Jesus was encouraging us to have. Right? He gives us that example of the Pharisee that goes into the temple and prays, and there is that miserable, sinful tax collector that's alongside him, and the Pharisee is praying, Oh God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I tithe and I fast, and I'm not like this heathen tax collector. Praise you, Lord. You know, and the heathen tax collector just pounds upon his chest and says, Forgive me, Lord, a sinner. And Jesus says, It's the tax collector that went away justified. Understanding who he is. Surrendered to the Lord, right? The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. That's the thing that produces the blessing. I can't encourage us enough. Surrender ourselves to the Lord. Allow for His blessing in our lives. Amen? Amen. So we'll pick up with chapter 40 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be together, to have You minister to us from Your Word. Help us to minister to one another. That we would just be loving and accepting of one another. Whatever condition we come in here today, Lord, that the warmth of friendship, the warmth of family relation as the body of Christ, the children of God, that we just reach out to one another and care for one another. Help us to love one another in the way that you would have us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.